Brendan Murata is an award-winning filmmaker based out of Austin, Texas. He graduated from the University of North Carolina School of the Arts Film School to work as a professional film editor, and his first feature-length documentary as a director is called American Circumcision. You will never guess what it's about. Uh, Brendan, thanks for being with me. And let me just start off by asking, why is this the focus of like your first feature length film? I mean, who says I want to direct a film and it's it's going to be about dicks? You know, I did not think I would be working on this subject. I didn't even think I'd be doing documentary. My my focus before this was sort of escapist stuff, horror films, sci fi uh, things like that. But then like a lot of my interview subjects, I had the obsessive epiphany, the moment where you realize that there's more to this issue than meets the eye. Uh, and you start researching everything that you can on it. And so I was essentially all the interview subjects I have in the film. Now I was reading their stuff. I was trying to figure this out. And, uh, I was talking to a friend who was a cinematographer and telling her about some of the stuff that I was learning from this And uh, my friend said to me, you know, I'm working on like three documentaries right now, but what you're telling me is more interesting than all of them. Like, (laughs) why aren't you making a film on this? And that was sort of the, the impetus for the film. And, you know, I started working on it and it kind of transformed my life. Like I wasn't expecting this to be the journey that it was, but I am, and I I don't know if I, if I would have started, if I knew what an endeavor I was taking on, but I'm really glad that I did. So why, why this uh, particular topic though? What was it about this issue rather than say some other faith-based issue or uh, something else with bodily harm, whatever you want to call it, uh, that drew you to this particular subject? Why did this get your attention And also, just for the record, in case someone's listening who doesn't even know what circumcision is, how do you describe it? You know, it's really interesting you asked that last part because there's a moment in the opening of the film where, you know, there's activists on the street and they're talking to people. And there's this one elderly gentleman who comes up and starts talking to one of them. And they're telling him about, you know, circumcision and why this is an issue. And he says, do they remove skin in that? And like, he doesn't even know that part of the body is cut off in circumcision. You know, this is a man in his sixties and like no one has ever told him this. So there's this sort of, um, it's this, this toxic secret in our culture. And I think what drew me to it is that I went through a period of my life where I was sort of letting go of different things that I had been given when I was growing up, patterns of behavior, beliefs, things that just didn't serve me anymore. And what bothered me about this issue is that while you can change your beliefs, while you can let go of other things that society might try to put on you, this is one you can't change. You're, you know, if you've been circumcised, there isn't yet a way to totally reverse that. There's something where you can get some function back called foreskin restoration, which we can talk about later, which is covered in the film. Um, But this is one you can't change. So that really bothered me because I'm someone who wants to have power over my own life that, you know, I have a huge focus in self-development in personal growth. And so to encounter a challenge that I couldn't change really bothered me. And honestly, like most men, I just sort of thought, well, if I can't change it, I won't think about it. Like, you know, why focus on something you can't change? Uh, and then I started practicing meditation and I, you know, for me, meditation is just being present with whatever is there. Uh, it's not a, there's nothing mystical about it. I'll put it that way. It's just being present. 
But when I started practicing meditation, I had the word circumcision come into my mind as I was meditating. And since I pay attention to what comes to me in that state, I thought, well, okay, this is here. This is something that some part of my consciousness wants to deal with. And so I better actually listen to that and focus on it. And that's when I started the research. That's when I sort of had the obsessive epiphany. So, okay, you know about circumcisions. You're, you're talking to people. You're researching this stuff. What did you learn in your research where you just had no idea uh, that was an issue? Uh, what's something you learned along the course of researching this film and making it? All of it. That's the <laughs> short answer. Um, there really, you know, there's a saying among activists who work on the circumcision issue that the more you learn, the worse it gets. And that it really is, you know, like Alice uh, tumbling down the rabbit hole. There's so much to this issue that I think the general public doesn't know. So it's kind of hard for me to summarize that because I'd have to sort of show you the whole film. But um, golly, I mean, one example, this is just one of many, is that for many years, doctors did not believe that infants felt pain and they would do circumcisions with no anesthesia, which, as you can imagine, is hugely traumatizing. I mean, the screams are are awful to hear. And it wasn't until the late 1980s that uh, Anand and Hickey did a study showing that, yes, infants do feel pain. And, yes, it has a lasting effect. So to think that doctors were doing this for the majority of the hundred years that circumcision has been a medical practice with no anesthesia, never occurring to them that they might be causing physical pain to a child. I mean, it's just mind blowing. And so, you know, I think another thing that has, I've noticed through this issue is when I started, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll research all this information. I'll put it together in a film and then I'll show people and then they'll know. And, that'll be it. But what's interesting about this issue is the levels of cognitive dissonance it brings up. So you might present people with information and some people will immediately go, oh, okay, like new information. I will adjust my perspective based on this new information. That's a very rational thing to do. And others will have the most bizarre reactions and they'll feel the need to tell you about how fine they are with their penis, even though you did not ask about that and don't care. <laughs> um, and they'll, they'll pull out the sort of strangest justifications and beliefs and cultural myths. And so what's been interesting to me about this film is not just all the information that I've learned about circumcision, although there is a lot of that information and a lot of that presented in the film, but what it shows about human nature and the nature of belief and how, how once we've decided we're going to believe something, we'll come up with any sort of strange rationalization for it. And that, to me, has been one of the most interesting parts of the film and something that has benefited me not just you know in educating people about this issue, but in every area of life. I have definitely had those conversations with other people where, you know, you try to make the case that this is, uh, let me ask you, is this a faith-based activity or is this something that stemmed uh, for other reasons and we just kind of attribute it to faith now because that's what the culture, uh, that's what happens in culture? So in America, it's not, it's a medical ritual. It is a cultural practice. It's not necessarily tied to any faith. And you'll meet people who are, you know, total atheists who 
are still tied to this practice, which I think is a testament to the power of cognitive dissonance and belief and all of the things around that. And so mo- and even, you know, among the American Academy of Pediatrics, which promotes this issue, I think most of their membership and most of the top pro-circumcision voices are not religious. They, in fact, they will tell you that they're the pro-science side and that anyone who disagrees with circumcision is anti-science. So if you believe that the human body evolved over thousands of years and that every part of it has a function, especially those associated with reproduction, well, that's just a horrible, you know, anti-science belief and how dare you. Um, So it doesn't seem to be a medical, or excuse me, it doesn't seem to be a religious issue in America. But if you tell people that it's wrong, religion will be the first thing they go to. So they'll say, well, what about religion? What about people who practice this as a religious practice? Even though they're a very small percentage of the population, and even though as we as a culture agree that religions do not have the right to harm their children and violate their basic human rights. So that's the challenge of this issue is that it intersects with so many different things and so many, you know, taboo like really personal identity level issues. It's sex, politics, religion, all in the most personal way possible. You know, uh, just going back to the point I was um, making earlier, which I have talked to atheists. I've talked to uh, non-atheists about this issue too. And like you said, yes, they bring up these justifications, including it's a religious thing. Why are you going after people's religion Um, and things like that? And I do want to raise some of these uh, common uh, arguments and play devil's advocate with you for a second. But since you brought it up, I actually pulled up the American Academy of Pediatrics statement on this issue. This is something they released in 2012. And they said, and I'm quoting here, after a comprehensive review of the scientific evidence, the American Academy of Pediatrics found the health benefits of newborn male circumcision outweigh the risks, but the benefits are not great enough to recommend universal newborn circumcision. The AAP policy statement published, whatever, this day in 2012, says the final decisions should still be left to the parents to make in the context of their religious, ethical, and cultural beliefs. And I know they got a lot of pushback on that as well tons tons and um i don't think they've uh, revised that statement uh, correct me if i'm wrong since 2012 they haven't now they've released some stuff clarifying it which has been interesting and which we'll talk about in the film um in fact this past right when we launched our kickstarter they had their 2016 conference and it was hugely controversial i mean there were huge protests outside there were confrontations between um protesters and and people who are on the task force. And we wrote up a blog post about it, which, you know, details some of the sort of chaos that was there. But, you know, you have to sort of think about what it would mean for them to say that this practice that their membership has done for such a long period of time, that there's something wrong with it. What sort of loss of prestige that might mean, what sort of loss of revenue, what sort of lawsuits it might open them up to. Um, I totally understand why they wouldn't say that this thing we've done this really long time uh, is wrong and we're going to stop doing it. In fact, they did that in the 1970s. They released a policy statement saying there's no medical indications for newborn circumcision and we should stop doing it. And there was a huge backlash. And part of it was because there was a lawsuit that happened 
uh, a little thereafter by a mother who said that she was misinformed and would not have wanted this done to her child had she known. And so that's when there was another policy statement released that now has the phrase that everyone quotes of the benefits outweigh the risks. And we interview the author of that new policy statement, Edgar Schoen, in the film and sort of go through the history of that. So, you know, it's a sometimes when people hear a statement like that, they think that they're hearing something from a scientific body when really they're hearing something from a trade organization essentially that's highly political and has a lot of legal and you know other reasons why they might be releasing it and they're representing um, the best interests of pediatricians not necessarily yes. the the babies or the people who are being affected necessarily now there's a, a current member of the AAP who um appears in our film who I I can't talk about yet it's one of those things we're going to reveal in the film one of the things that we talk about is that there was a, a clarification released by a member of the AAP who said what they really meant was that the cultural benefits outweigh the risks and that parents should be allowed to make these choices and that they acknowledge that the reasons that parents do it are rarely medical or scientific. They're cultural. It's because that's what they do in their family or that's what happened to them when they were kids or that's what looks normal to them. Which is, you know, there's no other part of the body that we do cosmetic surgery on, on babies to make it quote unquote look normal. Um, it's a very, it's a very sort of bizarre clarification. And I think that most parents, when they talk to their doctor and their doctor says, well, the AAP says the benefits outweigh the risks. They're, they're not reading that as a cultural statement. They're reading that as something is coming from a physician. So there's this sort of the the position is like a Schrodinger's position. It shifts <laughs> depending on who they're talking to and what uh, what sort of implications they want it to have. So I want to play devil's advocate with you. Uh, let me bring up some of the common things I know I've heard. And I know you're not a doctor, but you've researched this long enough. So uh, let me hear what you have to say in response to it. Uh, some guys will say, my sex life is fine. Being circumcised hasn't affected me. It's not like I have pain anymore. So what do you say to them? So most Western people would say that human beings should have a choice over their own sexuality. And the argument that activists make is that that should extend to men. So if men are okay, again, like here's another aspect that uh, one of my interview subjects brought up, Ronald Goldman of the Circumcision Resource Center. He did a study where he asked men how much tissue they thought was removed during circumcision. You know, a range, and he got a range of responses from one inch to five square inches. And the more men tended to minimize how much tissue was removed, the more they were okay with it. And the more that they thought tissue was removed, the less they were okay with it. Now, the actual number that's removed is up to 15 square inches. So if men don't know the difference, then they're going to say that they're fine with it. I mean, I, like I said at the beginning, there's some men who don't even know that there's tissue removed. So... Okay, if so you don't know, you you know, there's yeah, that's not really an it's not really an educated opinion. One answer that I have heard uh, from some people is that, uh, okay, your sex life as a circumcised man, you may uh, think it's fine, but you don't really have a basis of comparison because we have no idea what other people feel like or don't feel like. What they can say is that men who are not circumcised and have that tissue. Uh, 
I don't know if it, they say that they have more nerve endings or they could feel it more intensely or whatever the explanation is. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I got a really good explanation of this from one of my interview subjects, Glenn Callender of the Canadian Foreskin Awareness Project. So he has a live show um, where he demonstrates, and we managed to film this in a way that will not be X-rated, thankfully, um, where he demonstrates the different types of orgasms you can have with the foreskin. And the interesting thing is that there are different types of orgasms you can have. You know, the same way that women can have a different type of orgasm from the G-spot or the clitoris or all the different parts that they can go for, for pleasure, men can too. But we've removed most of the parts that would allow that. So the, the type of orgasm you get from the ridged band of the foreskin is different from the kind of orgasm you get from the head of the penis. Now, the orgasm you get from the head of the penis, which is what most circumcised men have, is still really good. Like, it feels great. But I think that most men, if they knew that there were other types of orgasms they would have, would love to experience that. Like, of course. Um, and it's the same case with circumcised women. Circumcised women will tell you that, yes, they can orgasm. Like there's the G spot. There's all the internal orgasms, but the stuff you might get externally isn't there. And I think that most women think that that's valuable and would prefer to have that experience. So you may not have the comparative experience, but, and what you have may still be really good, but there's other things that you could have had that you were born with that might've been something that you wanted. Okay, so let me, since you brought it up, let me ask you another argument is that uh, is male circumcision at all on par with female genital mutilation? I mean, what are the big differences besides the body parts themselves? So if you talk to people in the American Academy of Pediatrics or in Western culture in general, they'll say they're nothing alike and female circumcision is done just to harm women and control their sexuality and male circumcision is totally a medical procedure and, and there's nothing, you know, there's no similarity. Um, if you talk to circumcised women, which I interview them for the film, they will say that they're very comparative. Um, and circumcised women who are in favor of genital cutting and circumcised women who are not in favor of genital cutting actually agree on this. They both say they're similar and it's only a Western cultural imperialistic bias that would make you think otherwise. Um, cause we're, you know, it's very easy to point at someone else's culture and say their practices are weird, um, while ignoring practices you have in your own culture that may be strange. So, so Americans may say, Oh, look at, uh, some of those Muslim people in say Africa who are doing uh, female genital mutilation. That's barbaric. Meanwhile, in America, we may, uh, circumcise our sons and think nothing of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, a part of it too, I think is just the ignorance about the dynamics of female genital cutting. Like it is usually practiced by women on other women. It is an initiation right for them. Um, and there's different types. So there are types that remove all of the external genitals and there are types that only, um, nick or cut off part of them. And actually the American Academy of Pediatrics released a, a policy, uh, paper that they got in a lot of trouble for and very quickly retracted where they said, because we're allowed to do this genital cutting on boys, um, and it's much more invasive than some types of female genital cutting, we should be allowed to do a ritual nick of little girls' genitals to satisfy parents who come from cultures where that's practiced. And of course, at the time, there's a federal law against any kind of female genital cutting. 
And there was a huge howl of protest at that policy statement. Um, and they very quickly said, oh, you know, never mind. We didn't mean to say that. But it's a, it's sort of a revealing statement. Um, and it, there are members of the American Academy of Pediatric Circumcision Task Force, the male circumcision task force, that that were supportive of that statement. So, you know, I, I think that anyone who says that there's no similarities of any kind just isn't familiar with the dynamics and the, the realities of both practices. Um, another question for you. Uh, someone may say there are health benefits to uh, men getting circumcised. Yeah, so we go into that in the film. Um, the interesting thing about the history of health benefits is that they change over time. So uh, we talked to Leonard Glick, who is a, a historian um, who wrote a book on circumcision called Marked in Your Flesh. And one of the things that he talks about is that whatever the disease of the decade is, that seems to be what circumcision, quote unquote, cures. So in Victorian times, it was masturbation. They thought that masturbation was the cause of many ills, both physical and social. And so if you just remove uh, a large pleasurable section of the penis, then kids will stop masturbating and you won't have that gliding action of the foreskin. And... You know, obviously, that that sort of meme drops out after the sexual revolution because it's no longer good advertising. But if you look back at the the origins of circumcision as a medical practice, it began as a masturbation cure. And when you hear people say it's cleaner or it's more hygienic, that myth actually goes back to the meme, the the cultural idea that it's more morally hygienic. Um, and of course it changes over time. So then it became cancer of the penis, which, you know, is very rare and, um, mostly occurs in old men and you'd have to circumcise. I think it's, I don't have the number in front of me, but I think it's like a thousand to prevent one case of that in an old man. Um, and you know, you can, I mean, the difficulty with the medical health question is that there's there's sort of it's sort of like playing whack-a-mole. Like whatever, whenever you disprove one, they sort of come up with a new one. They're like, well, what about this one? Um, and we don't take that approach to any other surgery. Uh, you know, another saying I've heard about this is that it is a procedure in search of a cure. Um, and and again, you know, talking to a member of the AAP Circumcision Task Force, they sort of say, you know, they sort of admit that the benefits are not such that they even are enough for them to recommend it, that it's sort of so minuscule that um, that's not the primary reason anyone does it, that it really is a cultural practice. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, I think that the medical health question is almost a rationalization for something that already exists in culture. And if it didn't exist, if we had a culture that did not practice circumcision and someone came to you with the quote unquote list of medical benefits, that probably wouldn't be enough of you enough for you to hold down your child and cut off part of his genitals like that. You know, that's you because it's become normalized in culture. We sort of accept those rationalizations. But if it wasn't normalized, I don't think we would. 
which is why it's almost ineffective to deal with them one by one. I mean, I could go through, you know, every stated benefit and break down the science of it. And we do that with the, the latest one, the sort of, it prevents HIV, which, um, millions of dollars are going to that thesis right now. Uh, and we get really deep into those studies in the film, but it's almost, a, it's almost not even worth going through each one. Cause that, that actually isn't why most people make the decision. Um, is there a response to the idea that there's something cleaner about getting circumcised? Um, I mean, I would go back to where that idea comes from. That idea comes from a culture that sees the genitals as dirty and sexuality as dirty and in need of fixing. And, you know, we have soap and water. Like the, the reason that circumcision was instituted was because people would, were afraid that boys would spend too much time washing their genitals, that that would be too interesting, a you know, a thing for them. Um, so, and, and we don't take that approach to women's genitals. We don't say, oh, well, because women, you know, um, have periods or UTIs, we need to start taking knives to them. It's a very sort of, it's a, it's a very clearly a rationalization for something that people are already doing. And what about the more superficial excuse that, uh, not saying that this affects babies, but maybe people who get it later, which is that women prefer circumcised men. Uh, I almost always hear that from an aging boomer who uh, no man would prefer. (laughs) So I, I know that may be a bit harsh, but um, nowadays, among the generation that's growing up, it's not seen as a weird thing. And in some cases, the the intact body is actually a preference. So again, we wouldn't we wouldn't cut girls' bodies to make them what men prefer. We wouldn't say, well, men prefer large breasts, so we're going to give breast implants to little girls that would be seen as horrifying to surgically alter someone's body for the sexual pleasure of another person. Like I I just, the, and this is what I mean by most of the reason, you know, when you start getting into each of the reasons and go, okay, like, well, what sort of person thinks that that's a good thing? Um, it's very clearly something that people just haven't thought about and in any kind of critical way. And they haven't been given the tools to think about it. So, you know, I would just say to that, that the, the generation that's coming up now is a generation that very much believes in sexual freedom, in personal autonomy, um, that doesn't have a revulsion to the natural body and the natural form. And, that if someone has this idea that it's going to be seen as an, as an abnormal thing, you know, the circumcision right now is at 50% and it's dropping. And in fact, the CDC says they think it's only, you know, like at 30% or something like that. So if you were to circumcise your child now, they're going to be in the minority when they grow up and they'll be seen as the abnormal one. Let me get back to that question of the statistics because I was going to ask you about that anyway. What was the male circumcision rate maybe a decade or two ago? And you're saying it's at like 30% now? 
the CDC is saying that. I think that their estimate is a little low. And part of the difficulty is that, you know, there's it's very hard to get tracking on this because some of them are done in pediatricians' offices or in religious ceremony, and we just don't have the data. Um, the best estimate I've heard, I, I think, is maybe around 50%, but it's dropping. So in the 80s, it was like 80%, 90% or something like that. Um, and it was nearly, nearly universal before that. So it's something that's going down. And I think part of the reason it's going down is because it's now a choice parents have to make in the sense that it used to be when you went into the hospital, you signed a blanket consent form, which said they could just do any procedures they wanted to your child. And that was just sort of a routine thing. And now, you know, some parents complained about that, that and said, we want, we want the choice. And so now parents have to sign a specific consent form for circumcision. And that means that it's a decision they have to make. And that means they research it. And now it's a lot easier to research things. People can go online. There's alternative sources. They can, they can do their own research and not just get information from the person who is trying to sell them the procedure and will make money off of it. I wonder if there's also something to be said that we are living in a culture that is becoming less religious. You know, we keep seeing these studies that say the percentage of non-religious uh, people in the United States is rapidly growing to like 30, 40 percent now. And it's, it's still rising. And when you think about it, that gives you less of a religious incentive to do circumcisions. And so I wonder if that plays anything into it as well. Right. Yeah. Most of the reasons and justifications that people gave in the past for circumcision are less compelling now. So, I mean, you know, religion, the, the idea that everyone does it, not everyone does it anymore. Um, in fact, it's the minority. So I think that's definitely a part of it. And there is a general trend in society that people are more willing, people are more aware that mainstream sources are not always telling them the truth and don't always have their best interests at heart. And so that's true. And that's true on religion. That's true in politics. That's true. And that's true in medicine and this particular issue. So I, I think there's sort of a, a rising tide that's benefiting so many different issues. And that's part of it. This is an awkward question, and I'm going to delete it if it gets too awkward and just edit this out. <laughs> okay. But I wonder... I think I know what you're about to ask. Me. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, I feel like the only time you really get exposure to, to penises is, you know, if you're having sex, that's one thing, or you see it in pornography. And I wonder if there's any change being made where if men who are uncircumcised are in porn that might actually have some sort of effect on normalizing this idea that no guys who are not circumcised, that's not a weird thing because you see it all the time. And I wonder if there's uh, any change being made between like, yeah, the, the usual guys you see in porn, they might be circumcised, but maybe now they're not as much. And maybe that uh, contributes some sort of change to what's going to happen down the line. I'm certain that that's a factor. In fact, I have one interview subject who told me that he became aware of this issue when he saw an ad online for something called the Send Slip, which is a, a like replica fake foreskin that you can wear. And he was like, why would you need that? And he started doing the research. So I, I'm certain that the internet and that that, that the fact our society is more open about sexuality has a has definitely affected this issue and for the better. Let me change uh, the pace completely. 
are, there are laws in the books to prevent, uh, at least in the U.S., I'm pretty sure, to stop female genital mutilation. Is there any effort to try to ban male circumcision in the same way? Oh, you just opened a big can of worms. I'm sure I did. Um, so we interview we interview the woman who got the laws or helped get the laws against female genital cutting in the United States passed, Soraya Mary. She's in the film. And we also interview, or we follow actually, Lloyd Schofield, who had a ballot initiative in San Francisco that was basically the a copy of the Female Genital Mutilation Act, uh, which passed in 1996. But it was the Male Genital Mutilation Act, which had all the same language, except it would ban the circumcision of male minors. And it was a local San Francisco initiative, and it caused a massive, massive controversy. Um, The ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, mobilized against them. They put thousands of dollars against them. They hired lawyers and filed a big lawsuit. Um... And we, you know, we have, we had cameras at the court protests outside as that court case was being decided. And, um, it's, it was really a massive controversy. I don't want to reveal too much about it, except to say that the ballot initiative did not go through, unfortunately. And I think it, it, you know, the issue dealing with, with this that you have to face is that the religious lobby and the Jewish lobby are both very powerful and they do not like the questioning of this issue. So from a legal standpoint, it's very challenging because you're essentially taking on those large organizations. And I wonder, uh, even if a law got passed, I mean, most of the laws that involve this sort of thing, they usually have religious exemptions. And if that happens in the case of male circumcision, it kind of defeats the whole purpose of such a law because so many people get it for religious reasons. Right. And many of the Jewish intactivists who we interview say, you know, I, I should have been protected. Like I didn't want this. Um, so it's, it's very challenging. You know, the, the lawyers we talk to in the film too say there's this idea that you pass laws and that changes everything. But really what happens first is that the culture shifts. And once the culture shifts, once the majority agree with this issue, then the laws will begin to change after. And that's been the trend on so many different issues, everything from gay marriage to marijuana legalization to, you know, anti-war protest. Like every issue, I think the culture shifts and then the laws sort of catch up. And that's probably what would have to happen here in order for there to be any kind of legal shift. So let me ask you, uh, tell me about your Kickstarter. Tell me about when this movie's coming out and how people can actually watch it. So we have a Kickstarter right now. It's going to go until the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, And the stage we're at right now is the film is shot. I have an edit. It's way too long. And so we're working to edit it down. And we have a reward called the uncut edition, which will have all <laughs> our bonus footage and literally hours and hours, you know, extended interviews, a whole probably like at least an hour just on the HIV studies that were done on this and breaking down the, you know, science of those and things like that. So, you know, I, you sort of have to embrace some of that. But uh, basically, we're the Kickstarter funds are for post-production. So sound editing, color correction, music, things like that. And each of those is a job that we have to pay someone like 5000 to do to make it a quality film. And then uh, in the spring and fall, we'll do film festivals and we'll probably get it out this time next year. 
So that's the plan now. Uh, it could be out a little sooner, but I'm saying this time next year because I want to under promise so that if I sure. deliver sooner, I just over deliver. But that's where we're at right now. And this is a question I don't understand because I'm not in your field. What do you do once this movie's out? I mean, uh, what are your options in terms of you can put it out yourself, but obviously you maybe want to make some money on it after this is out. Can you like try to get it onto some sort of streaming service or Netflix or what are your options in terms of uh, the best way of getting people to see this movie other than just sticking it on YouTube where you probably won't get anything for it. We're totally going to be on streaming services at minimal, even in my self distribution plan, we would be on Amazon and iTunes and all those places. So I think the plan actually may be to do a tour of some kind to do like a college tour or to have screenings around the country in sort of select places where I would do Q and A's afterward and try to get people engaged on this issue. Uh, so that's an option. That's something we've talked about. And part of the reason we're doing festivals is there is a possibility to sell it for television or things like that. But at this point, I, I can't give you anything definitive. I just can say that if you contribute to the Kickstarter, you will get a copy of the film when it's out. We have options where like for $20, you get a digital download. And for $100, you get the film plus our hours and hours. And I mean like at least 12 hours of bonus footage. Um, and regardless and you'll get that regardless of what distribution path we go so the exact distribution i can't say it but at minimal it'll be on you know itunes and amazon and all those places and hopefully we'll get some really interesting screenings around the country that we can then turn into even more discussion about this issue and no one will ever protest it oh i'm i'm really looking forward actually (laughs) to the um the controversies that this will create i think it's actually you know once you know that they're coming it's actually kind of fun uh, cause you know, it's the challenge of this issue is getting people talking about it. So if people do interesting stuff to, uh, draw attention to the issue, I think that's great. Yeah. And I think, uh, like you suggested earlier, part of the issue is just raising awareness that this is a problem, that this is an issue because most people probably haven't given any thought to it at all. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is such a, it's such a taboo subject and it hits people on so many identity level things that, you know, challenging your beliefs can be painful. I mean, it's a, it's a shift in your reality of some kind. And I, I admire the courage that anyone has to talk about it and to be willing to do that and explore and open themselves up to learning new information. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. We will have links to the Kickstarter page in the show notes. And once again, Brendan Murata and the movie is called American Circumcision. Thanks so much. Thank you.